Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women in science, technology, engineering and maths or STEM an opportunity to share honestly and openly about what it's really like working in these typically male-dominated subjects. Each week, one woman shares her stories and experiences. She could be a public figure, the girl next door or someone from a far-off land. The point is she'll be deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we're not distracted by the details of her achievements, her labels, or what she looks like. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, also a woman in STEM. I studied mechanical engineering and ended up as a television broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting edge technology and innovation over the years. And through my television work, I've met some incredible women from a diverse range of STEM fields. And you know what? I've been more amazed about what I've learned from these women when the cameras have been turned off and they're just being themselves. These women have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us. And it's that off-air honesty that I'd love to share with you through silence. This week, my guest has a background in accounting and finance. Hi. Hello. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's so great to, to have someone from a more kind of mathematical uh, background. How did that come about? Well, I, I think it's really um, growing up in a um, in a South Asian community where maths actually was um, you know was a very respectable subject to study, uh, irrespective of gender, and um, and so I ended up studying mathematics and um, and then after you know, studying mathematics, I then went on to um, study accounting and finance, and then um, spent. A decade in the field. And so as a child, was that your dream? No, I wanted to be a backing dancer of um, <laughs> Michael Jackson. Ah, uh, I had that dream too. <laughs> uh, so I, that was my absolute dream. And, um, and I used to practice dancing in my room. But I always felt as if it was a dream that I couldn't even articulate to my parents mm. um, for fear of being laughed at. And I knew earlier on, which is quite sad, that um, it wasn't a dream that I can follow because of the pressure to follow, um, you know, more sort of quote unquote respectable fields. Mm. So I ended up going into maths. So no, it wasn't a dream. It was more really conditioning from sort of parents and community in order to pursue a field that they would deem as being respectable. And of course, when you're young, you just want to earn approval, especially women. Yeah. I mean, I remember experiencing that kind of awe and wonder um, of Michael Jackson. I went to his bad concert mm. um, and I was tiny and uh, just thinking, I mean, this is a whole other world. And it really was um, something that was just more like fantasy. It wasn't the reality of, you know, life and futures and education yeah I, I, I never thought life could be that fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> for me it's interesting that you talk about the south east asian cultural background what's that like for um i i think there's a high degree of conformity that's required and i remember growing up and being very aware that people from the south asian community um you know were very much conditioned to conform and whereas I remember my peers from, you know, sort of just white British backgrounds, 
their parents were much more encouraging of you know finding their own path and pursuing their enthusiasm um and i remember sort of thinking oh that's quite interesting that difference between you know the way i was being brought up and the way my um my friends were who were sort of white british backgrounds did you ever feel different then yes i did and i think that um you know i think when you come from these communities you automatically do feel different and you become sort of cultural chameleons when you're at home you're sort of one we have one mask and then when you're you know at school uh with people from outside of your ethnic community you have a different mask and then um and and you end up sort of you know being able to run between both communities which you know in you know for us was quite different i think being a coming from a british muslim asian community is very different than the sort of white british community um so i think i think it just allowed me to really build my communication skills in terms mm. of adapting to different people. It's interesting that you take that perspective because I think um some people might feel that they were heavily disadvantaged by having to wear different masks. How did you navigate through that chameleon-like existence? I think really for me I'm naturally optimistic, so often I always look for the positive in you know in my life experience um i remember being upset that i couldn't go to parties or you know i couldn't date openly um anyway uh, i and i remember being sort of upset and feeling it was fundamentally unfair but i remember thinking to myself right you know independence is what happens when you're 18 um you know i just have to get through these teenage years as soon as i'm 18 i'll forge my own path in the world um so i remember from a very young age feeling i don't really like this environment i'm going to get out of this environment i know by 18 i just need to study work hard become financially independent and then i can actually build my own future according to the principles that i believe in rather than those that are sort of pushed um onto me so i remember understanding that and then therefore seeing that sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Mm, that's that's incredibly advanced thinking for someone who's a teenager to kind of have the confidence to know that your way is the right way. Yeah, I I think it's just I'm I'm quite solution orientated, so um and quite logical and so I just felt as if, you know, didn't really like the environment and um and i remember everyone used to always say oh well you know you have to listen to what i say you know until you're under my roof and you know and so forth <laughs> and i remember actually you know when you're 18 you have all these sort of freedoms all of a sudden and so i just i just focused on you know on the exit door yeah i can see the clarity of that you know like okay if the rules are a certain way because i'm under your roof i'll just when the time is right go under a different roof Exactly. Um but how did you did you ever have self doubt in terms of, you know, I wonder if my way is actually the right way or my parents or cultural background has it established as being the right way? Um I remember early on sort of looking up to my parents but then I remember I think you know when I was about I think about 12 onwards I just started questioning them and the answers that would come back i just didn't feel was logical or rational wow. um yeah. and 
you know, I, I mean, I remember, for instance, my mother saying something about the superiority of Muslims. I remember saying to her, well, if that's the case, then why is it that they're the lowest performing countries in the, in the world in terms of economics? And, and even back then, I used to read quite widely. And I remember, you know, we used to study geography and history and, you know, you'd open all these books and it was always the poor countries or Muslim or, you know, African. And I said, well, you know, if, if that's the case, if they're so superior. And I remember being sort of 12 and, and, she, and then she said, well, it's because it's a test. It's a test from God. And I said to my mother, and I remember the conversation and I said to her, well, I just think that's an easy cop out. That's an easy excuse. And, you know, if it's a test from God, then that means that they're failing. And if they're failing, that means that they're not superior. And then I remember getting a slap for answering back. And I remember thinking, okay, well, she doesn't really have the answers. So I need to go out into the world and get the answers for myself. Wow. I find that amazing. Um, Because I had a very similar upbringing, but I never had the confidence to ever think that my parents were were wrong. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's that's so inspiring because, I mean, it, it has determined the course of your life, hasn't it? That attitude. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. I never, um, you know, I, I was always questioning to people in authority anyway. And it's um, so obviously parents are the first people that you come across in authority. And, you know, as, as soon as I started thinking of the world through geography and history um, at school and seeing different cultures, I just thought, you know, I thought that there's more to this. Mm. So I want to be taken back to when you're a kid. I'm kind of getting the impression that you're a very strong-willed, confident child. Is that right? Yes, yes. I think I think you know. I remember being confident. I used to love. I mean, I, I do. I love. I've always loved people and speaking to them and understanding their stories. Um, and um, and I remember always being very curious. So I was constantly questioning people. Mm. Yeah. Curiosity is such an important characteristic for going into STEM. Um, Was curiosity always there or did it develop as a result of going down a STEM route? I think it was always there, Um, but I I was always fascinated by, um, you know, by STEM. I mean, in particular, I was fascinated by science because I just loved the approach of, of an evidenced based approach mm, yeah. and a structured process and I would apply that to sort of thinking so whenever people used to sort of spout off opinion I would immediately want to know well is it just opinion based upon unconscious or conscious bias or is it actually evidence-based and I think science gives you a really strong framework um, so that which you can take into all aspects of your life to seek evidence-based solutions as opposed to being influenced by um, by somebody's opinion in authority. And so what was school life like? Did you sail through your kind of STEM subjects or any other subjects? Um, I used to, I, I was always good at maths and, um, and I enjoyed maths and I just enjoyed the absolute simplicity and beauty of, um, you know, of, of looking at problems where 
the answer is not subjective. It's just, it's quite binary. You've either got it right or wrong. Mm. Um, so, so the purity of maths, I thought was fascinating. I, I love statistics. I thought statistics was fascinating. I thought there were stories within statistics, especially when you start looking at statistics of human behavior and population and, and how that data then throws um, qualitative um, analysis and much more meaningful than, again, an opinion coming out of, you know, sort of layers and layers of bias. Um, I, 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 I think that there's an absolute purity to maths and, um, and data and, and statistics. And of course, you know, it is a minefield in terms of um, how you, you know, create these, um, you know, these quantitative studies and how you extrapolate conclusions. But I just felt it was a much more sound foundation um, than other forms. Mm. So I, I've all had a, a great love for maths and, and data. It sounds like you have a very empirically based mindset then. And so um, choosing mathematical subjects um, definitely sounds like the right choice for you, even though it was an expectation from your cultural background to go into a subject like that. Yes. And I think also both my parents, um, they studied economics and um, and maths, and they also were in accounting and finance, both of them. And so I think also when you're brought up in that household, you basically just pick up that level of thinking. And um, so, so I do think as you know, as children, you you pick up your parents' profession and therefore their sort of way of thinking, the way of looking at the world, um, and then that ends up sort of you know buried in our psyches. Yeah, I mean, you talk about you know, maybe some strained conversations that you had with your mum, but who inspired you to have such a strong sense of self at such an early age? Was there anyone? Yeah, I I think there's, I mean, I think my mother's family actually has a number of people in the family that have been, you know, very sort of successful and interesting um from sort of I mean my grandfather I was very inspired by my mother's father he was um you know he sort of came out of Kashmir joined the British army um he then became chief of staff in Oman and did military coups and then he went off to you know Iran and you know and he was a military advisor to the, to the Shah of Iran and he and he was just extraordinary and he set up political parties and then he you know was made his money from I think sending people from the subcontinent to work in the Middle East and he was just a pioneer mm. and he was absolutely handsome and stylish and you know and, and, and charismatic and everywhere you went you know in Pakistan when I used to go and visit they would be like oh you're so-and-so's granddaughter and you'd get so much respect and everybody would just tell you all these stories about how wonderful he was and and it was also he was a kind man and he gave back to the community a lot as well so I remember thinking, I want to be like him or, you know, I want to have, you know, some part of him where I'm good at what I do, but also I give back to the community as much as possible. Because I thought to myself, what a waste of human life to just look for your own success and that of your immediate family. How lovely is it to actually give not only to your tribe, but outside of your tribe. And what a lovely in a way to live and give back to humanity mm. and I remember being highly inspired by him and his values yeah gosh I feel inspired by him and I I don't know who he is <laughs> so um 
So was education for you really just a means to an end, you know, kind of another important string to your bow, but, you know, just part of a greater plan? Um, well, I think because my father, um, I mean, he was a great champion for education and he used to always say, read outside of your subjects. So my father very much enc- encouraged us to read outside of our subjects and learn. So my father himself, you know, used to, I mean, he loved learning so much that he learned how to speak Farsi so he can understand Persian poetry because he wasn't satisfied with the translations. And, you know, that was the sort of person he was. And um, and so, you know, I was quite inspired by my father's love of learning because that would, that didn't get him any extra credits at university. He did it purely for the sake of the intellectual satisfaction. And so, um, so that was sort of inspired in me. So I would obviously study for my exams, but it was very much follow your enthusiasm. Where does it take you? So I remember, you know, at my A-levels, I was studying um, maths and science. And I remember actually just spending most of my time um, reading philosophy. And I remember reading all these books by John Stuart Mill on liberty and, um, and then talking about it with my father. Um, and I remember at school, there was a lot of my peers who would only learn what they had to learn in the syllabus and they were very sort of results orientated in terms of just you know putting all the time and effort and energy into reading what's required in the syllabus in order to get the grades in order to get to the right universities in order to get the right job Mm. and I remember looking at them thinking well you know perhaps I ought to be doing it but I just can't stop myself from you know, from actually my curiosity leading me into subjects outside of my syllabus. And probably that was to the detriment of my grades. But I, um, you know, I love learning. But more well-rounded at the end of that mm, I think process. so, yeah. Did you have a game plan for life? Yeah. So, so I think um, growing up, my game plan was to get to the age of 18 and just leave and um, and be independent and that was very important and my sort of game plan was to do it through education so at 18 go to university choose a university away from the family home so I can live in halls of residence and um, so, so that was the initial game plan was just basically get out um, into the world through education and um, and then when I did that then in my second year at university I just I really wanted to actually leave you know university because you know I was having financial problems and my you know I wasn't really getting the support from my parents and so um and I also was just I just wanted to have this itch of just getting into the world and so I after my second year I took a year out to set up a, a tax business and I thought I'll just come back I thought I'll just earn money for a year and come back and finish my degree and I I actually just ended up never going back and I didn't finish my degree after my second year and but my business took off and um, so in a way I had a plan, but then, you know, the plan changed. Where on earth does your courage come from? I mean, the bravery it must have took to just set up a business when everybody else is like almost done with their degree. You were thinking, I'm just going to set up my own company. Where, where did that courage come from? I think it was at the time where, you know, you had the sort of dot-com boom, you'd open up the newspapers, there'd be students, you know, who'd set up lastminute.com or other tech companies and they'd have insane value evaluations. Um, and it was, the, the climate was incredibly positive. And I left during that climate and I set up 
a tax business and I remember teaching myself HTML to create the website and 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 it was really an environment of you know students can do it because actually in the newspapers there are all these stories these personal stories of students who then went and set up tech businesses and were doing extremely well and um, and that was very inspiring and so I just sort of felt well actually age is not a barrier to business mm. And um, and then also bearing in mind that my mother set up her own business in Pakistan when she was 18. Um, my father set up a string of businesses and I grew up in a very entrepreneurial environment. Right. So for me, I had all the role models mm. in place um, and, you know, and, and I observed my parents growing up. And so therefore, I didn't have that fear yeah. that often cripples people who perhaps haven't been brought up with entrepreneurs, because for me, it was like, you know, making a cup of tea. I've, I've watched my parents do it for, you know, all my life. Gosh, I mean, that is absolute gold dust. The fearlessness. I mean, that is really key. Well, I just, I just also never really felt worried about failing I, because I, I just felt as if, I mean, I felt bad leaving university and not going back. And, and, you know, and there was various people who said, you know, that's really bad. You shouldn't do it. But then, you know, once I was sort of making money, um, Mm. they stopped complaining. Yeah. So was anyone helping you or supporting you? Did you have any kind of safety net underneath you? Um, Actually, what happened is I I actually uh, didn't have a good relationship with my parents. And so I stopped um, so I didn't have any financial support, which is actually why I left university after my second year to make money because I just ran out of money. I had mm-hmm. nothing. And, um, and then I set up this business because I was actually doing the business on the side whilst I was in my second year. And I was, and I was getting so much, uh, so many clients that I couldn't cope working and studying. And that's why I thought I'd take a year off, earn the money and go back. Um, but I didn't have a security net. And I think that's probably why, um, I was so driven because I didn't have that security net. And then um, I think, ironically, I achieved a lot in my life when I didn't have the security mm. net. And then as soon as I got married to a wealthy man, I feel that my I have achieved less because I now have a security net. That's so fascinating. And what do you think were the keys to your success back then when you were just starting out? I think it was, um, A, I had very strong role models in my family and my community who were successful, who were entrepreneurs. And um, and so therefore, you know, it's like watching a TV show. I mean, I was watching a TV show of entrepreneurs all my mm-hmm. life. Um, so I think that was really helpful. Um, I think that both my parents are actually incredibly hardworking and they're both really smart and intelligent and so I guess you know a lot of it is nature and nurture you can't really dismiss the DNA um so I think you know I was lucky to inherit that from my parents uh, the nature and the nurture and um and then I think last you know lastly I myself am incredibly driven and curious and hard-working and I prefer working to this day to um you know hanging out with friends or you know, going to a spa or shopping, I'm sort of just wired for work and I'm wired to learn. And my enjoyment comes from learning, not from buying a handbag. Because you mentioned earlier that you love people. Do you think networking and knowing people had a part to play in your success? 
I think that um, in my first business, which was the the accounting and finance business, it didn't it didn't help at all. Um, what helped was just head down and working and having a clear vision and being consistent um, and being smart enough to understand where the gap in the market is. And um, and I think what did help is actually the ability to build a personal rapport yeah. with my clients. And um, and I think that came ironically from my ability, from, you know, that I always read outside my syllabus. So, I, I mean, I had a lot of clients who were sort of immigrants, influx immigrants claiming tax refunds. And they came from, you know, the former Soviet Union. And because of my reading around, I don't know, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto um, and reading widely about, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union, which was outside of my syllabus of, of you know, maths and sciences, I was actually able to connect with my mm. clients. And because, again, my natural curiosity, each person that sits in front of me is like a book and that everyone has a story. And so I would naturally be interested in the clients, asking them questions about where they came from, their families, their journeys. I knew a bit about their background because of my reading. And um, and I think the ability to then connect mm. with someone, they then felt that. And then they would go off and bring 10 of their... And I remember being particularly successful at being able to establish a relationship with a client. And then they'll come back. And they were so touched that somebody actually genuinely was interested yeah. in them whilst I was filling out the tax return, um, that they just felt that on such a deep level. And they felt so grateful for just actually just being listened to. And they came back with 10, 20 people and they would just bring in. They would just, you know, the business just went nuts over referrals. Yeah. And of course, I had a financial incentive, but I just always had the niggly feeling that a lot of it was actually just down to being able to connect with them human to human. And I think when people can sense that you're naturally interested in them and their story, they're so grateful to just be heard on a very deep level. Yeah, my gosh. That's so beautiful. Um Yeah, that real, like, sincere connection with others um seems to have been um you know a key part of your success um so is it safe to say that you've always been extremely heart-led I think I follow my I, I have a feeling inside me that sort of says talk to that person or pursue that or you know and I and I do listen to it and I do it and um but, you know, I let my mind also come up with a logical plan. So my heart sort of says, go in that direction. And then my head figures out the path. Ah, that's amazing. So it's a combination. Yeah, because I think a lot of young girls um, who maybe from more culturally diverse backgrounds feel the burden and heaviness of kind of tradition and societal expectation. And you have come from that but it doesn't seem to have been an albatross around your neck I think it's because I did notice a difference between my family and other South Asian families that were around in in London and I remember and I think it's because first of all my both my parents um, were educated and you know and there's a long tradition of you know people in my family doing interesting things that were multi-generational Whereas I noticed that a lot of the families that I came across in London, their parents were both uneducated or they were working in sort of factories. And so 
I think my parents represented a smaller minority of the Pakistani community here, who traditionally the majority came from a rural area where they um, you know, came to work in factories. And so my parents were you know, from a different socioeconomic mm. group. And as a consequence, that's what gave me you know, perhaps more confidence and more opportunities. Um, and so, you know, my mother, for instance, was a newsreader in the BBC equivalent in Pakistan. And, um, and you know, she set up various different businesses. And, um, and so I think, you know, I was quite, because I would go to other South Asian families and they would appear quite backward mm. compared to my family. And so I realized from an early age that I had cultural affinity with these people, but yet their mothers you know, are, you know, are sort of just cooking and cleaning and, you know, and, and there's no, they're not sort of working and then the daughters are sort of following that. And whereas my mother was a very different type mm. of mother um, where she was, you know, I mean, she was a feminist for mm. starters. <laughs> and um, and so we had a very, very different home life. And I remember my brother used to make friends with, you know, other British Pakistanis boys and they used to come to our house for lunch or dinner and they used to say, oh my god your sisters have so much freedom and oh my god your you know um you know your house is topsy-turvy your mother's <laughs> in charge and they were sort of and they'd come to our house and you know and I remember some of them used to sometimes say to me oh you shouldn't be wearing a skirt and I would give them what for <laughs> and they were absolutely shocked um that you know and they that you know there was me my sister and my mother were quite mouthy and um and, and they were absolutely shocked because the women in their families you know, were sort of just domestic slaves um, who put their needs below every, you know, male in the five mile radius. And we just were mm. not bred like that. Um, so I remember also having a conversation with my sister saying, you know, we can't marry into these families. Um, and the irony is that I ended up marrying an Italian and my sister ended up marrying an Indian from East Africa because all because the South Asian community, there are different types um, and so the East African Kenyans were like our family. They came over from professional or business families um, into the UK. And they therefore we have ironically more in common with, you know, an Indian from East Africa um, than with another British Pakistani family that came from rural uneducated mm. backgrounds. Did it not confuse you? Um, no, we thought it was really funny. And um, when we used to go to these people's houses and, you know, and, and the mothers, you know, would and I actually really, really felt sorry for the women. I felt sorry for, you know, the daughters. I felt sorry for the mothers because I thought their lives were utterly miserable and they were conditioned um, to just, you know, put their needs, you know, and I just thought what a loss of human potential. And and I used to go to the houses and I used to see the brothers sort of layabouts and not doing much. And the girls used to actually get better grades than the boys because, you know, they were just a bit more earnest and they'd work hard and they weren't allowed out. So they'd just study. And um, and I remember thinking, my God, these girls have so much more potential than their brothers, but yet they're not allowed to flourish. Mm. And, they're, and, and, and on top of that, they had to do all the housework. And so and they'd still outperform their brothers. Um, and I just thought to myself, that's so unfair. And actually, you know, my me and my sister ended up outperforming my brother and my father and my mother were just like, we don't care about gender. It's about capability. And um, and I just... What a great message. I mean, great message. I mean, I had my issues with my parents, but my God, looking back, you know, they were just, you know, 
they were wonderful in terms of pioneering quality. But you know, every, yeah. even in Pakistan, my aunts still to this day run their schools. So you know, our family in Pakistan, the girls and the boys are just given equal weight to pursue education, and even our sort of ancestral, you know, um, village in Kashmir, it has equal boys and girls going to school. And, you know, and this is in Kashmir and even they were living in mud huts and they have. And so I think, you know, each part of, you know, South Asia and each different village, everyone's got their quirks. But this actual tribe that we came from, you know, was very, very, you know, sort of gender equality in terms of education. But of course, you know, as soon as marriage and kids came along, it was a different story. And the emphasis was on the woman to run everything. But up until sort of, you know, their equivalent of A-levels and, you know, degree, they wanted the women educated. It was it was a sort of a source of status for the family. Are your parents still around today and what do they think of you? They are still around. Um, my mother, I don't, you know, have a conversation. I, I haven't had a relationship with her for 20 years. Um, but my father, I'm very close with. And, um, and my Oh, they're separated, they're divorced as my father remarried and my mother doesn't speak to me because I'm close with my father. Um, but my, my father is incredibly proud. I speak to him all the time. Um, he is, um, very happy. I mean, he said, you know, I wish you did marry a Muslim man, but he said to me, I knew there's very few Muslim men that would be able to, you know, have a wife like you. And mm. he's, um, so, you know, he's, he's very sort of understanding and, um, and he's, you know, he's, he has immense pride, actually. And he's, you know, he often says to me, you're my favorite out of all the children because, you know, you remind me of what I was like. And yeah. he's very happy. And he, and he says to me, he says, you know, I achieved a certain amount in my life. Um, but, you know, I went from Kashmir to Karachi, which is a city in Pakistan and, you know, topped the universities and then came to London and built, you know, businesses and then retired with a certain amount of wealth. Um, and he said, I expect you to do a lot more than me because you stand on my shoulders. And so mm. my father really gives that message that, you know, you are as capable as I am. And he says, but you have got more opportunity than I have, than I did, because he had to face immense racism and prejudice coming over in the 70s. And he said, you know, you live in a very different climate. And he said, so you need to go further. So he's very championing, which, you know, which I love. I love having a father like him. And has he always been that way? He's always been like that. And to be fair to my mother, who, although I don't speak to her, she's also been exactly the same. Mm. It's interesting that you talk about your relationship with your mother, um, because I think often women feel that they have been strongly influenced by their fathers, but actually mothers play such a crucial role in the development of a young girl's confidence and self-esteem in the world. That's very, very true. And I think also if you have a successful father and you're a daughter, you do look at your mother because, you know, you you kind of think, well, actually, maybe men can succeed, but women can't. Um, and it, I think if you end up having an educated and successful mother like I did, it did make me think, you know, OK, I can do it. What does having it all mean to you? I think it's so fake. Um, I think it's really setting women up to fail. 
and um, and I've got a real issue with society and how it conditions women um, in Western Eastern societies. Um, you know, my issue with having it all is it gives a message to women that it's normal for a woman to flourish working and being successful and having a career and a marriage and raising children. And the fact is, if you're going to do that, you basically lose your sense of self. And, um, and you know, and, and it also sort of makes women feel as if, you know, if they're struggling, it's something that's wrong with them. And, mm. you know, so, so, so I've, you know, I, I've got a huge issue with this, having it at all. I think it's a really bad message to give to women. And I think, you know, what we should instead say to women is, you know, if you want to be a stay-at-home mum, that's fine. If you want to be a single mother, that's fine. If you want to have a career or not have a career, that's fine. Not because there's really three things having all entails. It's motherhood, career and marriage or, you know, partnership. And I think the message to women should be, if you want to have three out of three, fine. If you want to have one out of three, fine, or two out of three, fine. But let's not give the message that you should be aiming for three out of three. It's ironic that you say that because I know you and I would say that you do have it all. So I'm kind of surprised that you are sound so passionate about this unhealthy message. I think it's because, you know, we're, I don't think we're born equal. I think that some people have the ability to work harder to be able to think smarter, to be able to manage stress. Some people have health problems, some people don't, some people, you know, it's mental or physical. So I think with that in mind, I've managed to, you know, to be able on the outside to have, you know, to have it all. But on the inside, it's really tough and I struggle day to day. However, I am quite, you know, extreme in my ability to work hard think smart um and i've had all of the privileges of being brought up in a family where i've had all the role models mm. and i look at perhaps women who a haven't had those role models who've had their self-esteem constantly chipped out because they saw their mother in an inferior position to their father um who have then gone out into the world and society itself does its fair share of chipping away at women's self-esteem through you know the sexualization and objectification of women um and the gender pay gap and so forth so it's a real issue it's not a sort of fake imagined issue um and then you know women who you know suffer from i think who are prone more to sort of you know mental illness or physical illness or just you know have more fatigue um and who are perhaps able to multitask as well. So I think it's unfair because what it really says is perhaps someone like me who's to the, who actually has extreme um, abilities to cope in high-pressured environments, and actually I love it and I flourish in it to a certain degree, you know, I'm probably 1% of women. And what the having it all tells society or tells women is you, the 99% should be like the 1%. Mm. Yeah, and it, and it's not fair on them because uh, my friends, you know, my my female relatives, they are in the ninety nine percent, and when they look at me and they say, "Well, actually, you're doing it. I should do it too." I think it's really unfair because I've been wired. My my nature and nurture has brought me to the position that I can do it. But even when I can do it, I can just about cope, and I'm wobbly 
often and I have, you know, day to day struggles on it. And I think, my God, if I'm that one percent and I can do and I can barely do it and I and I sort of drop the ball constantly. It's unfair to tell the 99 percent of women out there that, you know, they can do it, too. I mean, I've had a lot of privilege in my life through role models, you know, through um, education and through my natural inclination to work and, you know, and curious and a bit of luck and you know and also I'm lucky that the husband that I have you know he doesn't work he sort of manages a you know his sort of inherited portfolio of properties so therefore he's not pressurized so therefore when I come home and I'm in a bad mood he's not equally in a bad mood from his bad day at work and and we then we don't kick off so you know I look at other households and both parents are working so they're both bringing stresses I'm in a household where only one fundamentally has the pressure which means that when I come home he's quite relaxed it also means that he does forget his fair share of domestic stuff he does more than I do I also have a mother-in-law living with me um which I've just put up with just purely because I know that she was she's there to help in looking up with um you know with my daughter and running their houses so I've sorted things out bit by chance bit by luck a bit by plan to enable me to quote unquote have it all plus I've got the nature and nurture for it but I really am in a tiny minority of women and the majority of them should not be pushed to, you know, to aspire to have have it all when actually their nature, nurture, the nature of their marriage does not allow them to. And it just makes them feel awful. And I think it's really awful because I think, you know, one way to manipulate women is to make them feel as if they're underperforming make them feel insecure make them feel they're not good enough and that's how you keep people down yeah so should the response to women should have it all be actually I'm just going to pursue the things I want for me should that be the response I think the response should yeah exactly I think women should think really long and hard about what is it they want and if you know I think men have become a lot better you know in the last 20 years in the UK in terms of sharing their burden I think what was happening is there was a peak in divorce um, a couple of decades ago because what was happening is women couldn't cope with you know working the same hours as men earning less than men (laughs) Um, they were also doing a higher share of work in terms of running the household and a higher share of work in terms of looking after the children. And as a consequence, the divorce rate soared. And I think the divorce rate is now reducing and it's probably because men actually are stepping up a bit. But I just, I still don't think it's even. I think they're doing a bit in the house and a bit for the children, but it's nowhere near even as yet. And I think until we have this gender pay gap solved, we have more women in senior positions and men are really doing an actual partnership with women, not sort of like 20%. They should be doing 50% um, until they've stepped up fully. It's not going to be a kind environment for women to flourish in. And then on top of that saying, oh, you should have it all. What about men having it all? What about men having a career and managing their marriage and raising their children? Why should women be the ones having it all? Why can't we change it and say, oh, men, you should have it all. I step up as a dad and step up in the house. 
Yeah, I think it's tricky for women because um, even if they have all the capability in the world to reach senior positions in their career, we can't avoid the time that is required to become mothers. How do we get around that? I think it varies for different women. So when you are pregnant, women vary in terms of you know hormones, how it affects their physical and mental and emotional being. Sometimes those effects last you know up to two to three years after you have children, and then if you then start for having another child, another child, and another child after that, it could be fifteen years that your mind, that your um, your body has change the equilibrium in your you know physical mental and emotional states so you know you're actually also trying to deal with biology Mm, and there's no amount of like positive thinking or oh come women step up can do it you're actually you know there's, there's biological impacts when you have children and um and also, and, and you know, and it has a huge impact in in women's careers and and women's relationships with men. It is really, really difficult. But again, it affects some women more than others. It's not an equal playing field. Yeah, because whenever I have these discussions about women in STEM and male dominated environments, sometimes I wonder why I bother. Kind of because there are just some biological facts that we can't get around. That's true. But, you know, the legislation, it doesn't help. I mean, it's it's actually a really simple problem. Women, fundamentally, the majority that I know, want to work, want to give back to society, want to have a, self, a sense of self, but they do not want to do it to the detriment of the neglect of their children. So what they really want is good quality childcare. The issue is that often... Once they've, you know, paid their taxes and they're commuting, there's not much money left over for quality childcare. And so therein lies a problem. Now, of course, what the government should be doing, it should be completely tax deductible, not little niggly little vouchers here and there. Um, and it shouldn't be, ta- and it should be not even sort of, you know, ex- accessible in terms of like, you know, rubbish, low quality, um, you know, nurseries, but really well-funded, high-quality nurses, uh, sorry, nurseries, um, and and so forth, that allows women to be able to leave their children in confidence and go to work at the same time. And at the moment, whenever I've, I've had conversations with women who get pregnant, they just sit there, they get the calculator out, and they're like, right, if I go to work, my net salary is this. After I pay my, you know, costs and so forth, I've got this much left over. After I pay the cost of a nanny, you know, it's sometimes it's just not commercially viable. And then they mm. end up, and then they end up thinking, oh God, you know, then in that case, I just will stay at home. And then they, and then their career is just put on hold. And then they go back after 10, 15 years, no confidence. Um, completely behind in terms of you know sort of new technologies and the new way of working and they end up having to work for people that they used to manage or you know who were their interns um so you know women are just completely set up to fail and you know and so of course the birth rate is going to sort of plummet and then we're going to rely more upon immigration which then has its own social cohesion issues um, and it's like, well, why doesn't the government just wake up? I mean, we've got female as a prime minister, for God's sake. And just, you know, the government should be funding childcare 
for women, not little piddly little tax credits, really generous to enable women to be able to work. I mean, look at the Nordic societies. They've managed to do it and they've managed to do it well. And here, you know, we're just, um, it, it, it's, it's just not, you know, it's not doable for women. Mm. Unless you're really, you know, the shell sandbergs where you're earning millions and you can have real top level childcare for other women. It's like they've got to really drop their kids off to a place where, you know, the teach child ratios is, is you know, um, is, is just not attractive and appealing. Gosh, I mean, it just sounds like an absolute minefield. And uh, for those young women out there that are actually only at the stage where they're considering, you know, do I go into something like STEM or do I follow the arts? It's kind of daunting to hear about what's happening further on down the line of life. So with all of that considered, what would be your advice to someone kind of starting out on their career path and life path? What do you regret maybe? Or what kind of pearls of wisdom would you want to throw on these young women who are starting out? I think if you look at the statistics, women do really well. They do well at school. They do well in their early years in their career. And I think where they start hitting a brick wall and the, you know, the salaries and the level of seniority, the stats reflect this, is I think it's their late 20s. And surprise, surprise, that's the time when they're sort of thinking, oh, got to get married, got to have a child. And what happens in your sort of late 20s and your early 30s is the women start getting distracted. And instead of thinking about their career, they start thinking, I need to get married. I need to have a child because the biological clock, again, biology. And so that distraction, until they then have found the guy and then got married or not got married nowadays, um, then the problem is, that then the real problems start because then it's like being hit over, you know, run over by a bus, but yet you have to continue to still keep walking, you know, which is, you know, running in your career. Um, so what actually happens? You start mentally being distracted in your late 20s, early 30s because you realize your biological clock is ticking and you realize you need to find someone and have a kid, right? So that takes distraction away from your career. So, and mm. you see that all the time and it's politically incorrect to say it, but it's an absolute fact in the workplace. Um, you know, I often give opportunities to women and men if if I'm a bit, you know, I'm probably a bit biased more towards wanting to help women. Um, but the women are like, no, I'm not interested. I you know, in the evenings I want to go out and, you know, I want to spend time with my boyfriend and, um, you know, or my husband to be or whatever. And the men are like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll go there. I'll go traveling. I'll go to that networking. So the men are the ones who jump at the opportunities um, in you know, and the women start closing themselves off from the opportunities because they give priority to relationships. Men give priority to themselves. Women give priority to their relationships, i.e. to the men. So what happens is women take their power and give it to men. Men mm. are not giving it. I don't hear a man say, oh, no, I've got to go home to the wife. Or no, I've got to spend time, you know. Men would gladly cancel a Valentine's weekend to Paris if it means that they get a promotion. Gladly, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll, you know, it's, oh, sorry, darling, couldn't do it because of work. Women, you know, they find it difficult to say to the boyfriend, oh, sorry, I can't do it because of work. Basically, men prioritize their work, women prioritize men because they want to get the men in order to have the babies to stop that biological clock ticking. And then, and they think then they're going to live happily ever after, but they don't realize actually the journey 
you know, of um, hell has just started because then what they then have to do is once you're married or you've got your long-term partner, you the relationship will survive on the premise that you put his needs above yours. And because that is gender conditioning, um, you know, he's basically been trained by his mum to think like that. Um, so women are also part of the problem. And, um, and then they you know, they end up then having to put their needs below their, below the man that they're with. And if they don't, the man will walk out and go somewhere else and there'll be other women willing to, to, you know, play second fiddle. And, um, and then that's not the end of it. Then the kids come along. They want to put their needs. So all of a sudden you have a hierarchy where you've got the kids' needs, then you've got the man's needs, and then right at the bottom is your needs. But surprise, surprise, there's no time and energy left for your needs. So you end up working like a zombie for 10 years, 15 years. The kids grow up. They then find their own way. Your husband or your guy probably ends up leaving you because you become a bit boring because you're obsessed with kids. And and, um, and then you end up middle-aged, midlife crisis, can't get back to work properly on the same level that you were before. I mean, you know, at my age, I'm seeing women, I see women going into the tunnel. I see women walking through that tunnel and I see them coming out of the tunnel where they've hit their late 40s, their guys left them, the kids have gone to university, they've got empty nest syndrome and um, and they are financially have to downsize because the guys left them for some woman. I mean, I see it time and time and time again and I'm like, oh my God. Um, and so I just figured out a plan. I just thought, right, I'm not going to marry a man who's going to put his needs above mine. I'm going to marry a man who um, is an equal partner. I'm going to marry a man who's got a very strong mother because then he knows how to, that he knows how, you know, women can be strong in those positions. Um, I'm going to make sure that I'm financially independent. I'm going to keep my career running the entire time. I'm going to make sure that he steps up and does at least half, if not more, um, in the house as well as the kid. And, um, and I'm going to make sure that I build my career and my sense of self so that I don't come out of that tunnel, you know, after my kids are grown up, completely alone and vulnerable. Wow. What a great plan. Well, let's hope because, you know, of course, um, life never goes to plan. I, I mean, all I do is I look at the risks and then I learn how to mitigate the risks. And it doesn't mean that I'm not going to end up being like these other women that I know who've come out and their kids have grown up and their guys have left them and they've got no money and they've got no prospects of career. Um, and they've given their sense of self and they feel bitter and angry and upset. And then menopause then hits you. I mean, that's another biological stuff in the face. Um, <laughs> but, but, you, but you've got a plan for it. You've, you've got to know what's coming down the road. It's a very practical and realistic approach because I think women end up walking that tunnel because of the dream and fantasy that it's not going to be like that. The hope that it's not going to be like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we are going in the right direction. I mean, it's not doom and gloom. I think men definitely are stepping up. Uh, I think a lot of men actually are quite happy to, you know, to be able to say, to, to be able to, you know, be in a society where they can be good dads. You know, a lot of them felt just the pressure of earning money themselves. And, you know, now they're, they're quite happy women taking equal pressure because it's not really about gender. When you form a relationship with someone, it shouldn't be about gender and the man should go to work and the woman. It should really be, well, who enjoys to stay at home? Who enjoys to work? You know, who wants to have a high powered career? Who doesn't? You know, it shouldn't be about gender. It should really be about, you know, about the, about a partnership, which is really who flourishes in which areas, and how are you going to divide the roles and responsibilities in a way that suits the temperaments of the two people in the partnership? Mm. 
and being really mindful about the way things change. Because I think a lot of people make decisions based on a particular chapter in their lives. You know, you're getting on well with your partner, you're fit and healthy, you know, everything's great. But actually, you know, as Buddhists say, actually, you know, everything is in a state of impermanence. And just kind of, it sounds like you plan for that. Yeah, I think, you know, the only constant in life is change. And, you know, friends come and go, sometimes partners come and go, you know, even children, they're with you, intensely attached to you. And then even they detach, um, because they need to go out into the world and forge their own life. And, you know, one shouldn't be selfish with children and sort of want to keep them, you know, tied to their apron strings. So I think the, the key is really independence. And I think for women, the key is really economic empowerment that and that's what gives you your independence. A lot of women are tied to situations or men because of the financial dependence. Mm. Um, I think we are lucky to be in this society than a lot of the other countries around the world. Women have a lot more rights. They have a lot more opportunities open to them. Um, we're not quite like the Nordic societies, but um, you know, I think we're the next best thing in this society. Mm. And we're heading in the right direction. Well, I'm so glad that we did end on a positive note because the realities can be quite harsh. Um, but it's also really good to face them because I think um, trying to cover our eyes to uh, the general sort of patterns in the societies we live, it only puts ourselves on a back foot. Thank you so much for kind of your experiences and your thoughts and your approach to life. I just feel utterly inspired and I feel like I will probably repeat listen to this episode because I, I've, I've just got so much out of what you've shared. So thank you for coming on. I just hope it wasn't too negative. <laughs> no, not at all. I've, I think it's actually very interesting to listen to someone who has a mathematical background because things can be very binary. And I think sometimes what confuses us as women, maybe, mm. I can be so bold as to say that, is that we we tend to make things a lot more complicated than they could be. Yeah, analysis paralysis. Mm. So it's really, it's just been so inspiring to listen in, listen to a math, a female mathematician approach life. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. That's it from my STEM guest this week. I literally have goosebumps after listening to her. I just feel that her clarity and her binary way of thinking has been really inspiring. I don't know about you there in the audience, you know, whether you agree with that kind of um, way of approaching the world, but I just think it's so important to have clarity of mind and that's certainly what I got from my guest today uh, again I feel like I kind of have been enriched with somebody else's wisdom thank you for listening this week catch you next week on silence and please don't forget to subscribe 